So our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of, of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? I am not a Philistine, and you are not servant, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then, he will be, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their, thou- of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring, bring some token from them. Now Saul and they had all... And all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, And will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood who stood by him, What shall be done for what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to him who kills who kills him. 
Now Eliab, the oldest, the eldest son, heard when he spoke to him, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you, have you left those who sh- few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words of David spoke, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from his flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered, him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and his uncircumcised Philistines shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and put a helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then, Saul, then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, I am a dog that you have come I am a dog that you have come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild, and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that, this, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. And David ran quickly, quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hands in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. 
And the people of Israel came back chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, The commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this Is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the, this, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and the head of the Philistine with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Uh, good morning, I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor at Christ Central Church. And as he was reading that chapter 17, I realized we did it differently before. Like, you weren't supposed to read the whole chapter. I'm sorry. Um, no, seriously. Uh, I was supposed to summarize or whatever. I'm going to have to summarize anyway, because after that much reading, it's hard to stay focused unless it was the movie of um, David and Goliath. Um, it's hard. But thank you anyway, Deacon Blake, servant Blake Kettner, for doing that uh, for me. I appreciate it. Um, just so you know, um, to reemphasize some things Blake said before we get started today, the... Um, I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor. Did I say that? I'm so important, I've got to say it twice. Um, um, the, the, um, uh, our, one of our deacons, uh, David Sizemore, is leaving us. Um, he got a job in Atlanta that he has been, one of these jobs he's been wanting, holding out for for a long time, so he's going to be headed out. So if you know David and Carrie Sizemore, and even if you don't, they have been great servants at this church. I think they're leaving in mid-October. So guess what? You have an opportunity to go see him, bring a meal, do something, say hi, take him out to dinner, um, and, and love on them and say goodbye to them. Um, with that in mind, last week I went up to Pastor Giorgio's installation service. He was installed as a senior pastor, a lead pastor at Redeemer Church Ardmore in Winston-Salem. I went, and the praise team went too, and we had a good time. You know, it was old school, pastor goes, quiet travels. Um, we didn't have a bus with our name on the side of it, though. But, um, you know, the choir travels in the bus. I'm in the town card. It says Bishop One on it or something like that. It didn't work. Okay, that's a little too old school for some of y'all. Y'all didn't get it. Um, but, again, Philip, what? We good? John, we good? So children who had to come back from Children's Church, you can go to Children's Church. I think they worked it out. Um, you know where they're going, John? Upstairs. They worked it out. Boy, they happy. Um, so um, just that, that was just a good time and good celebration. Philip wants me to tell you a special thanks for Jackie for taking him around to the hospital and other places. She's been very good to him. So thank you, Jackie. Jackie, thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Philip, I love some Philip, let me tell you. He can tell a story. He's got so many stories. Just take a meal over there and listen to some of his stories. Um, it, it's great. Well, I used to have locks, okay, down to here before I cut them a month and a half ago. So that's when he says, I came to that church and I saw the dreadlock up there, you know, and these people coming in and but I'm just a regular black man now. So, um, 
Just, just regular. Just regular. Got the safe haircut. Safe Negro now, you know. Um, don't look militant, you know, whatever. I still am. I still am, you know. Wu-Tang. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just... All right. So um, this is not going well. We're already running late. Um, anyway, today's sermon, which is part of our vision of Christ Central Church series, comes from 1 Samuel uh, 17, the famous story of David and Goliath, the little guy against the big guy. Classic story, like Florida State against Clemson. Florida State, little guys, lost to us six out of the last ten years. Finally get a win last night. Rashid with his Seminole shirt on. We've been looking at our vision item, clear message of grace. Grace, which is God's unmerited favor, and in this case, powerful help and rescue from our enemies through a savior. Just to give you some background to the story, it is about 1000 BC and Israel, God's chosen people and nation, wanted to be like other nations around them and so decided to have a monarchy, a kingship to lead them. They choose Saul whom they chose because he was tall, he was big, he was strong looking. Well, after it was found that he had a big body but a small heart, God rejected this first king and anointed as replacement of Saul, David, the youngest son as the youngest son of Jesse. Now, one of the things uh, the king was supposed to do was lead Israel in taking and then securing the land God promised from the nations occupying it. Now, I use words like occupying, and I want to be clear. This is not a commentary on the modern-day struggle between Palestinians and Jews in Israel, okay? A lot has transpired biblically between then and now. I know how some of your conscious people think. But anyway, the Philistines, the the occupying enemy of Israel, has this bigger-than-Saul warrior named Goliath, a, a giant who comes out day after day, insults the people, insults the country, asking for someone from Israel to challenge him in a fight. Forty days of it. And David is sent with food for his brothers who are on the front line serving in the army. And it turns out that this unexpected shepherd boy will be the one who will slay the giant and for the sake of their kingdom and people, deliver and be a clear message of grace, a decapitating grace. I can't help but think about the fervor and energy we put into being successes and and protecting our political futures and covering ourselves, and and being safe, and being sure, and not risking ourselves emotionally, that you and I just may be living in fear, and running in fear of something big, real big. Maybe rejection, maybe meaninglessness, maybe some dark secret, maybe failure, maybe from a God who we fear will crush or hate us. This message from God's Word is for us today. From this narrative, the message is clear for us. Some 3,000 years later, we too need a champion. We need a savior 
who will decapitate our giants because like the Israelites, we are runts before many of our issues that in life, inside and outside of ourselves, we encounter issues, giants if you want to call them, which we can't deal with. Look back with me at verse 4 in our reading. And it says this, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him." Now, I'm not going to get into all the poundage and all that, but this almost nine-foot-tall guy is wearing enough armor for two or three men to have to carry. Goliath's description should tell us, and, and when you read this, it should tell you that he is humanly impossible to take out. That is what the writer is telling us, that any facilities the Israelites have are futile against him. His armor, his stature, the weight of the defense and offense has every human barrier of getting rid of him. He represents an impossibility, a no, a no way, a not today. Going against him would not be courageous, it would be kamikaze, and the Israelites knew that. But not only that, Goliath is giant because he represents and is the giant grown sum of human sin, of their sin, of Israel's sin. See, Goliath is is the added up result of a lack of belief in God's decreed word and promise that none would stand between his people and the promised land. Yet they look more at the appearance of things than the promise of God. Basically, he has had time to grow in his height. God told them to take the Philistines out a long time ago, but they they failed to do so because they didn't believe God when they had their chances. Goliath stands for all their desires, gone and grown wrong. Goliath is everything Israel wanted to be and wanted to have in a king or a champion. He is tall, remember why they chose Saul? Because he was so tall. He is big enough physically to fight their battles. Remember, this was exactly what they asked for and wanted in a king, a human warrior who would go for them. Their greatest desire has now become their worst nightmare. Goliath was their greatest that the Philistines would be in control, that they would be empowered and keeping them at bay. Their nightmare has has come from under the bed and out of the closet and out of the horror stories and now face to face with them. It all started out with nothing much. Oh, we'll deal with the Philistines later or they're no big deal. We don't have to listen to God today. We can wait for three or four months later. And out of this three or four month wait, out of this long wait, out of this inability or lack of faith or sin to go against the Philistines, here grows up this giant that they now can't handle. I remember the movie. Anyone see this B movie called The Stuff? Okay. But these two guys are working at this factory and this stuff comes out the ground, like yogurt looking stuff boiling up at the ground. And so, of course, one guy takes his finger and he, he dips it and he's like, hmm, this is pretty good. Another guy, I'm B-movie. I've got a great idea. Let's package it and sell it to people. Okay. But the good thing about the stuff is 
you know what? It is delicious. It's the best thing you ever ate. It's healthy. It's no fat. It's, you know, the right kind of calories. And so they take everything else off the shelf, and all you see in grocery stores is the stuff. But little did people know, at night, the stuff would come out the containers by itself. I know. We got a lot of stuff that has been good to us. We have a lot of stuff that in the beginning, we, we, we tend to be disobedient to God about, and we consume and take in and bring into our lives. And little do we know that that stuff becomes the stuff that begins to make us feel like runts, that, that giant and lord over us. You and I have created giants with our sin, our unbelief, our dark desires that we now can't handle, that now control and champion us, that head us up, who lead us, and we have capitulated control to them. The drivenness, the fuel and, and push of our desires and, and unbelief in God and fears now have many of us at bay. Success is our master. Too many hours, too much stuff to have. Now you can't stop working for all the stuff and honor you've gotten. Our fear of rejection is now our master. Too many empty relationships, too many lies about ourselves. Now we can't find yourself. Now you can't find yourself or authentic relationship. Now we have a hard heart. Maybe anger, apathy against the gospel or anything remotely Christian is, is now our master. Now it's just near impossible to believe in God or have believed or refused to give it into it again after disappointment of some sort. Now you can't hear it, you can't believe it, and you can't settle in your heart to receive the gospel. Certain vices in our lives started out as just ways to fix the pain of being too little or, 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 or feeling alone or powerless, so you gave it over to something to help, but now it rules you, whether pornography or alcohol or dreaming about another life or something in, in disappointment. Now you can't feel. Now you can't live in reality. Now you are running from the fantasy that you have conjured up. It is in this lack of movement in our lives and being the wimps and runts of our lives that God sends help. That God sends someone to decapitate what is heading and leading us toward apathy and distance from God and defeat, but not so fast. For even when God's offer of help comes, it has to overcome something else as we see in this narrative. A resistance to God's offered power because it is too humbling of us. In this story, no one is moving. It is obvious they are scared wimps, that, that these fighting men are, are stunted by Goliath, and the shepherd boy David comes to bring food to, to his brothers who are among the scary. And the Bible says David keeps asking what the reward is for killing Goliath, which is a subtle offer to give a to, to get a go at it himself. Look what happens to him in his inquiry. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man 
who kills him with, with, with great riches and will give him his daughter and, and make his father's house free in Israel. That means no taxes the rest of his life. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach for Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down here with whom you have left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? What is not but a, but a word? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. His offer is rejected as a yeah, right. But more than that, it is a humiliation to the rest, especially those who knew him, his brothers. He rubs in the fact by asking the question and then adding the thing about, hey, who's this uncircumcised Philistine coming against you? Is anyone going to stand up? In other words, with all that motivation, and then for the glory of God, no one has moved. David is like, you bunch of girly men, you bunch of punks. And his offer is rejected as prideful, as, as just wanting to hang around and watch the fight and not really to get in it, but to watch and put salt in their shame and failure. This interaction with the one David who was anointed king in the presence of his brothers is like the interaction our hearts and ears can have with the advances of God on our lives and offer to help our lives. God's offer of grace comes as very humiliating to the human condition. And we don't want any help or motivation that is illuminating to our humiliation, that is a spotlight for our fear. When I was growing up, as you guys know, I liked some horror movies. I don't know why. Because I was young, I was too scary to watch horror movies. I was a kid that was too scary to really handle horror movies, but I was too curious, and I would watch it anyway. So I remember watching Friday the 13th with my cousins. You know how everybody got them older cousins that watch things you shouldn't be watching? Come on, Howard, we're going to watch the all night. We're going to watch Friday the 13th. Then after Friday the 13th is a movie called Wolfen, okay? Y'all don't remember that. Okay, Gregory Hines. Anyway, so we, 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 I watched that movie, and I remember... Getting in the room that night, and I had two brothers, and, you know, old school, we all slept in the same room, all three. We had three beds. Terrence, Joel, y'all sleeping? Yeah, what's wrong? Y'all want to come in the bed with me? <laughs> I'm scared. No, Howard, no! When mom and daddy aren't around, I'll give you a snack. Come on, man, come on. Don't come on and be going to bed. I'm scared. All right. And so they both would get in the bed with me. I put them on either side so Jason couldn't get me. <laughs> but then when it was daytime, Howard, in front of my friends, Howard, remember last night you wanted us to sleep in the bed with you? I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Come on, I wasn't afraid. You know, it, is, it was my help and my fear and my need for rest and comfort but the embarrassing, but embarrassing when the truth of it came out in the conversation or before friends. Some of you heard the gospel. 
The story of God's redemption. And it starts with God's goodness towards us and goes downhill when our story begins. We humans still fight to be the champions and not the lost in our story. We still fight to be the David in our story. We can't be wrong or weak. So much so that when we read the story of David and Goliath, we always put ourselves in the place of David. When the truth of the story is this, we are the Israel, army of Israel scared behind the lines, hoping there's a champion who's going to come rescue us. We like the second half of the gospel, that Jesus is a lover of sinners, but we don't like the first part, that apart from Christ, we are helpless, getting worse all the time, sinners, and the humiliation of the gospel has caused us to reject our help, to reject our Redeemer, to reject the gospel. That is the hope for us. In this church, we like to talk about eclectic community and redemption of all creation. And we like that, but we hate the fact that it will mean that you and I will see when we deal with people outside of ourselves and outside of our culture and religion or that, or, that we are in desperate need and have deficiencies before the Savior we claim. That's not all. Ironically, God's help itself is often too humble for us. We didn't read this chapter, but in the chapter before this one, chapter 16, which has David's ordination to be king, he was the youngest. He was the smallest of Jesse's sons, the furthest from having that king look. He was a, sh a shepherd boy. And even Samuel, God's priest who was sent to do the ordination, he tries to ordain his brothers. He's looking around thinking, oh, it's the big dude over there. I know. I know that's the king. And God's like, he's not the one. What? Okay, it's this guy over here. That, you know, he got the arms. No, nope, he ain't the king either. Call the, is there anybody else? And Jesse's like, well, there's the little one out in the field with the lambs. He's the one. There was like, what? Not, not him. He can't be the one. And he tries to dinner all the older brothers. But look, what, let me read to you what chapter 16 actually says. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God does, but we don't. God's offer of redemption comes in the form of a weak little shepherd boy. And they can't stand it. It doesn't compute. It's too weak. God's offer of power for Goliath and our issues is too humble for them. And now in Christ, is too weak for us at times. I mean, look at Jesus. He hung out with fishermen. And he was killed. And allowed himself to be called a fool. If I were God, okay? If I were God. I would have at least allowed the self-proclaimed Messiah to have rays come out of his eyes or something. You know, Jesus, I don't believe you to save him. Dude. Now, that's a savior you can believe in. Somebody is like the Avengers, somebody. 
you know, they had some powers or, or some kind of thing, and, and people just can bust, you know? Jesus, I don't like you. Boom. And he could have. Now he's left Christians having to talk about his coming kingdom of power, of a return in which he will make things right and tear it up and, and, and you know, open a can of you-know-what or what pains us one day. But right now it's all about his love and the power of that love to take on the world. I mean, come on. God has allowed people to put an image of their choosing on shirts and call it Jesus. Where's the rays from the eyes, man? And then he calls people on Sunday morning to worship in the middle of a messy social world, in the middle of their own personal crisis, in the middle of a powerful human struggle, in the middle of you not having a job or, or being sick or having a dying parent or, or not being able to pay the rent and talk about this foolish, invisible, but powerful God and message. Where's the beef in that spiritual sense? right there. Looking small, looking unfulfilled and able, and yet with one taste, fill the heart. In one taste of Christ, that small suffering servant comes the decapitating grace of God. You know, it's like those sponge things you would get in the cereal box that start off this big, and you put it in the water, and that thing grow like this big. We used to try to put it in a bucket just to see how big you couldn't pick it up because it's all moppy. But Christ comes, the gospel comes like a, like a seed, the Bible says, like one of those small sponges. We drop it into the bucket of our tears, in the bucket of sweat of our, our turmoil. It grows in its care for us. And here's the glory of it. Your inability to see it or the apparent smallness it has in your minds does not deter God from doing what is large in your life. This is the gospel, that we are sinners. Those who fail to see the bigness and effectiveness of Jesus and his message, those who look at the outward in opposition to the way God accesses, accesses things for that, and even in that, in that titan of unbelief, Jesus still comes to be your Savior. Jesus persists for your soul. He, he resists our resistance um, to, to his redemption. He, he comes in like David with lunches sent from the Father by him for his brothers. The apparently weak Jesus and Jesus' message is in a search and a mission to get and feed your soul and will get it and will feed it and will free it from its burdens and fears past your shame-driven rejection of Jesus' message. But if that weren't enough to deter our Savior, to separate us from the deliverance of God, we often wrestle for God's position. We want him to go with our add-ons. Look what happens here. Saul wants him to put his armor on, the Bible says. He wants David to go into battle according to him with what he thinks will make him successful or better prepared. He looks too weak. Uh, he obviously needs more. He needs what makes Saul and the other men strong in conflict. In other words, if David won with the armor, they could say, see, guys, to go into battle, you need armor and you need to be a skilled guy. And so he tries to add on to David the Savior. But look what happens in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and, and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The additions are too bulky for the task. It doesn't fit. He shrugs off Saul's agenda and additions to be able to rightly deal with Saul's and Israel's enemy. Like Saul, I think we try to help ourselves in helping God to do for us and better for us. That you and I will seek to weaken the effectiveness of God in our lives by trying to strengthen him with what and how we think things should go down. And especially in an election year like this, the gospel is watered down in our seeking to dress up God like a donkey or an elephant to make the issues we, we feel are most important and most, most important to God and to people on the outside. God looks silly and trite like a kid wearing his parents' clothing. We make God like he is wearing a costume of, of our agenda. God is more powerful and deserving in, our, in his gospel agenda than any foolproof or safe or caring politician or political theory we can explore. But even in other ways, we we won't accept a God as our Redeemer who won't wear the added garb of making us all happy in ways we want. We we don't want a Savior who won't be accepting of other gods and other religions or or my lifestyle or or the way I think I should should be prosperous or the way my relationship should go or or go as a result or or dressed up to be the God who wears the, the now promise of utopia. Unless God can be this color and perfect and change this social inadequacy, God is, listen to this, God is not your boy or doll baby. He is not your kid to be dressed up in your agenda. He is not a human okey-doke in, his, in the humility, humility of his offering before you. He is God. He is your Savior. Jesus has not come to be your or mine or anyone's political candidate. He is the chosen redeemer of humankind, chosen before you or this world existed. And for that reason, in his saving of us, and his redeeming of us, he cannot be encumbered with your agenda. And he refuses to. Jesus is slick. He doesn't make being a human with an agenda fun. I mean, it's hard. If you want to preach about Jesus, we, I, to, I tell people sometimes, you know, when they want to join Christ Central, I want to join Christ Central, but I have this and I have that issue, and can a church do this and the church be like that? I'm thinking no, but I'm listening. Well, I want to do this. What's the church going to say about this? And I've been doing this, and what, you know, what, what's this going to mean? I mean, people be checking off the list. Can God wear this? And can God go to battle like looking like this for me? And I'm like, okay, all right. And I always sum it up like this. I may never preach a sermon or confront you about this issue. But there is one person in our church that will not listen to me. There is one person in this church that has the right to throw off everything you want and demand of God and do it his way anyway. And that's the Lord Jesus. Did you forget he is in this church? 
Did you forget he's the head of this church? He don't wear nobody's stuff. Sometimes I'm shocked. I got something to say in a sermon, you know, and I know that's going to sound funny. Or that. Jesus like, I'm not wearing that today. But we know, but we, you know why we want to make it, him to dress up? We want him to make us look better than we are. Dressed up to make Saul and Israel look less than scared, wearing the armor of the king, he would represent their army's strength. The strength of Israel instead of God's raw power. We love to tell a story. But how we were so faithful and we trusted God. We want God to wear our awards. We want God to, like, wear a mirror suit so we can see ourselves in it, right? We want him to reflect our glory. We want the story to be about us. The Bible story is not about us. The Bible story is not about making us look better. Oh, how we want Jesus in response to the humiliation, the mess of mistakes that have become giants. How we want God to come to have Jesus simply make us look better than we are. And so some of us wear Jesus as a cross on our necks, as a name drop in our conversation, or like the stars do at the award show. Here is where Christians and pseudo-Christians are in the same boat. We'll do what it takes to look smarter and faster and better, and honestly, Jesus is the one way to do that, especially in the South. Man, you got Jesus, it helps your resume. I remember when, back in the day when we tried to get into colleges, you try to join as many extracurricular activities you could before you fill out that college application. They're looking for the well-rounded student. They're looking for the successful one in all these clubs. You guys, some of y'all, y'all are in the Jesus Club. He's just an add-on to make you look better. I got some bad news about the gospel. It ain't about people looking better. It's never been that. We're going to look the worst. You know what it's like to have a shepherd-looking boy go out with some stones when you got a sword and a spear and armor and you stand on the sideline waiting for him to beat, you, beat your enemy down? It will not make you look better. How do you think, how do you think David's brothers felt? Hey, man, that's your brother out there killing the giant? The oldest brother? Hey, um, didn't you used to change his diaper? Where you at, man? You letting the little boy be? I mean, this is the way our faith feels. We look at the outward, but God looks like God doesn't want to make you look better. He's come to make and declare you righteous, holy, and perfectly human before him because of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to adopt an agenda regardless of how good it seems that, that, that will fool you and others into adopting something or someone that isn't him. Quit telling people that, that their lives are going to be better with Jesus. The word better can just be defined a million ways. If you accept Jesus and come to church, you're going to be better. What's that mean, man? Better. No. You come to church, you accept Christ, you will be declared righteous. It's about holiness. It's not about better. God doesn't wear better. He's perfect. And he's holy, and he wants his people to be righteous and holy. And you know what? You can't do that. Because the giant of sin is in your way, and you are scared out of your mind. Look, I can't leave behind better. 
How are you going to leave behind better? Nobody in here can leave behind better in their lives. Everybody in here, you want to be better. That's why you're on the sidelines and you can't defeat your sin because you want to be better. You're addicted to being better. But God is coming to get rid of better and bring righteousness. Undress your Savior. He is free from anything that can seek to predicate him. Free from being Presbyterian only or Baptist only or the mean people's God to save you, to be your Lord. And so David, a type of Christ, a less than but clear foreshadowing of Jesus and what Jesus will do, slays Goliath. And in doing so, does not leave you or me behind. See, I think we're afraid. If we're not David in the story, we ain't going to get nothing. Everything in this world tells you if you don't get it, you're not going to get it. Right? If you don't go get it, it won't be yours. Look at me at verse, with me at verse 41. And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David and the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistines looked, Philistine looked at and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine came, said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The glory and victory of God, people, is not to humiliate you, but to redeem you, to restore you. David never says the victory is mine. He says the victory is for God's people. That they may know there's a God in Israel. God's come to bless us. To take the head off our enemies. The Bible says when David knocked Goliath out, and then it says he came with Goliath, he took Goliath's sword, and he killed him. And when he cut his head off and raised it up, then the people got up from where they were, and they jumped into battle and said, the, the, the battle is ours, we can win. Why? Because the Savior has gone before us. God sent Jesus to come to live to die, to take the head off our sin. The head off of what stops you from knowing there is a God in your life. So that we can rise up and sing a song of salvation and glory before God, that we can be righteous and live holy as his people. That's grace. A decapitating grace.